Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. These are the words of Mary. And this song here, and it is a song, most translations now have this written, or printed, I should say, in the poetic verse, because that is how it was written. It was, it was a song that she wrote. It wasn't just statements. The, the parallelism and the poetry is very clear to be seen. And it's known as the Magnificat which is our title for today. Magnificat is the first word of this song in the Latin translation. So you see, my soul magnifies the Lord. You know, other languages will put the verbs in various places. So the first line of the song is magnificat or magnifies. By the way, you can go online and you can hear choirs singing this song in the Latin or singing it in the, in the Greek. And it's, it's really something special to listen to. But magnificat, uh, sorry, magnificat. It's a word that means to magnify. Now, you know what magnification is. You have a magnifying glass, maybe. You've used those before. You've got to hold it up so that it makes something bigger. And that's exactly what the word means. They, the English word magnify comes from this Latin word to magnify. The Greek is megalune. You hear mega in there? Maybe you were a, you know, you were a science fiction fans and mega something is always like the big one, right? Megatron is the big one, right? That's because the Greek word mega means great or big. So to magnify in Greek megalune is to make it big. So the purpose of this song then is to make God seem bigger in the hearts of everybody who hears it. It's not that she can make God bigger or smaller by her own words. It's that when she tells you what God has done for her, he's going to seem so big to you that anything you face is going to seem small by comparison. Her spirit rejoices in what God has done for her. And she calls him her savior, which is an interesting title when you know the name of her son and what it means. But let's talk about her a little bit. Her name is Mary. It actually was Mariam in the Aramaic. She was named after Moses' sister, Miriam. We call her Mary. Maybe you've seen in other languages, somebody named Mary is called Marian or Mariana. That's because that in the Greek there, in the Aramaic as well, would have been Mariam, would have ended with that hard consonant. Well, she was just a girl, a young girl from a city called Nazareth. Now, we hear the word Nazareth, and today we go, oh, Nazareth. Praise the Lord for Nazareth. That's where Jesus lived, right? The Nazarene. There are churches of the Nazarene. But uh, back then, Nazareth was not a nice place, and it's not where nice girls came from. Even in John, when somebody tells Nathaniel, hey, we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. He goes, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now pick your least favorite city. Don't say it out loud. Just pick your least favorite city. Maybe pick the part of town you wouldn't want to drive through and think to yourself, that's where Jesus was born. That's where Mary lived. That's where she was from, in a poor, rough city. And that's interesting because we know Mary had that gentle and quiet spirit. However, we also know she grew up in Nazareth, which means she might have had to have a little bit of spunk to survive around there. And she, this woman in this city, was visited by the angel Gabriel. Now we hear the name Gabriel and we think of him as the Christmas angel. But the last time we saw Gabriel, he appeared to Daniel in the Old Testament, announcing the end of the exile, announcing the end of the world. 
So the last time he had something to say is, here's how the world's going to end, Daniel. Now this same angel shows up to Mary, and if you back up just a little bit in this chapter to verse 30, you can see what the angel said. Luke 1, verse 30 through 33, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. They always had to say that, because if an angel appeared in your house, I don't think your first thought is going to be, would you like some coffee? Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So the angel comes and announces to her, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be great, and all these long list of things that he gives, but there's a, there's a problem here. And Mary very respectfully submits that to the angel and says, uh, how can this be? I have not known a man. I'm a virgin. She was betrothed. She was engaged to a man named Joseph, who was a good man and a just man. But she says, but we have not yet come together in that way, nor will we until after the marriage. So how can you say that I'm going to have a son? Well, the angel explains the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. God is going to do something, a creative act in your womb. So there is no carnality associated with this here. This is something that other cults and groups, Islam in particular, will accuse the church of, that this is just another one of those stories like the Greeks where Zeus would come down and copulate with some woman. No, it's nothing like that at all. There's nothing sexual about what's happening here. This is the creative, omnipotent work of God in this woman to bring about this son. So she's to conceive as a virgin. And she's going to give birth to a son, and his name would be Jesus. And in the Aramaic of the time, it would have been something like Yeshua, which is like Yehoshua from the Old Testament, which is where we get the name Joshua from. So Josh was Jesus' name. And the name itself means salvation, which is why it is so significant when in verse 47 she says, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because the son who was to be born would be the Savior. Not only that, but this son she would bear would be called great. Everybody thinks their kid's going to be great, but not everybody grows up great. Maybe great to you, mom, or great to you, dad, but this son would be great by everybody's standards. Called the son of the most high. By calling God the most high, this is going back to the earliest titles we have of God. The most high. It's a picture of there's all these lesser, smaller gods that these other nations worship, but we worship the Most High God, the true and living God. So the Son of the greatest, the highest, the only true God. Why was that? Well, because the Bible explains this is not just God granting a child to a woman. But the reason this had to be a virgin birth is because this child to be born, this Jesus, was to be God himself incarnate. What we're talking about here is called the incarnation. Incarnation. I know I use the same joke every time, but it helps illustrate the point. Incarnation. In is to be in something. Carne is like the Spanish word for meat or flesh. So to be made in flesh. That's what's happening here. John chapter 1 explains this. So Luke gives us this very down-to-earth perspective of the birth of Jesus. John gives us the cosmic significance of what this was. He says in John 1 verse 1, In the beginning 
was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. This is Trinitarian language here. That this Logos, this, this entity, was God, but was also with God. Now, how does that work? Well, we call it the Trinity. We just recorded seven podcasts on it. You can go take a listen if you like. The point is, is it's one God in three persons. And the second person of that Godhead we call the Logos, or the Word, or the Son. In verse 14 of John 1, he says, And the Word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this child to be born was not just another baby. This child was God made flesh. God was coming to dwell in the womb of this woman to be born as a man. That's pretty spectacular when you think about it. Not just you're going to have a baby, you're going to be virgin born. Why do I have to be virgin born? So that the corruption of sin would not be passed on to this child. And the purpose, he said in, in chapter 1, verse 30 through 33, would be to restore the throne of David forever and ever. Now, at this time, Israel was not ruling themselves. They were oppressed by the Roman Empire at this time. They had just had their political status downgraded to where you're not allowed to rule yourselves anymore. We are sending a Roman official named Pontius Pilate, who had a reputation for being a rather hard ruler, to keep you in line. And the one who was even their ethnarch, meaning their, their ethnic ruler, wasn't an Israelite at all. It was a man named Herod, who was a descendant not of Jacob, but of Esau. He was an Edomite, an Edomian. So to hear that the throne of David will be restored would be pretty exciting to someone like Mary because she cared about her nation. She cared about her people. And this revelation she had received from God was so astonishing. You're going to have a virgin birth to the Son of God, and He is going to be the one to restore the kingdom to Israel. And He tells her, look, if you don't believe me, go visit your, your cousin Elizabeth. He goes, why? So you remember your, your old cousin Elizabeth? And it's important to the story that she's old. She is now having a child in her old age. I wonder how Mary reacted to that one. Was, Elizabeth is having another child? And she goes up to visit her. And when she sees Elizabeth, little baby John the Baptist in her womb says, leapt within her. Now, I don't have a womb. I don't know what that would have felt like. But maybe some of you ladies understand what it is when the child leaps within you. She would have noticed but when that happened, she sees Mary, says Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, blessed are you and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is that so exciting for Mary? Because she might think she's crazy. I just had a dream where an angel came and appeared to me and I'm going to have a baby and it's going to be the son of God. And am I nuts? I'm going to go talk to Elizabeth because the angel said that she's about to have a baby too. And that wasn't a virgin birth, you understand. It was just miraculous that she could conceive at that age. And she shows up and hears her cousin prophesying. And hears her cousin's husband who can't talk and maybe couldn't hear too, depending on the reading. Because he had tried to argue with the angel who talked to him. Don't argue with angels, by the way. That's your application for the day. Don't argue with angels. And she hears this. And have you ever thought you were crazy about something? You felt like you're the only one that saw it. Maybe God was saying something to you and you felt like you were nuts. And then you come up to somebody else and they says, no, 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 that's absolutely right. And the relief that washes over you. Well, Mary was so relieved. The next thing in the story is her singing this song. 
Now, I don't know that Mary spontaneously erupted in this praise. It could have been. Or it could have been that as she thought about these things year after year, she just continued to work on and pen this poem. And then when Luke comes around and says, hey, I'm writing down the story. Tell me how it happened. And she goes, oh, and I saw Elizabeth. And it was so wonderful. I actually wrote a song about it. He goes, you wrote a song? She goes, yeah, I've got it somewhere here. And she says, here, maybe you can use that. And now it's in your Bible. And 2,000 years later, we're still studying it. Because God had looked on her humble estate, this, this girl from the wrong side of the tracks, and had chosen her, and now all generations will call me blessed. Now some people make far too much of Mary. The whole point is that God chose her when she was nothing. But do we not still to this day call her the Blessed Virgin Mary? So she was right. Because how, how much more blessed could a woman possibly be than to give birth to the Son of God himself? So out of the joy she felt, Mary composed this song to magnify God to you. She goes, God did all this for me. And you need to know about it so that you can know what God could do for you and who he is. Which is why we move on to verse 49. She says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She now speaks of God. She's going to magnify three of God's qualities that are seen through the virgin birth. Three things that we learn about God from this. And I should mention also, this psalm is strikingly similar to the psalm that Hannah wrote in the book of 1 Samuel when God told her she was going to have a child and Samuel was born. So Mary knew her Bible because she seems to be deliberately or maybe unconsciously imitating the style of Hannah, who also was rejoicing that a son was given to her. But what are these three qualities? Number one, his might, that God is mighty. This the Greek word is dunatos. It's where we get words like dynamic or dynamite, powerful, right? The power of God. Indeed, God has all power. The word we use theologically is omnipotent. Omni, meaning all, potent, meaning powerful. That God is omnipotent. He has all power. Jeremiah 32, 27, God said, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? You can hear how we kind of ask that rhetorically. He's like, Jeremiah, it's me. You think there's something that I can't do? You think that I can't turn this nation around? You think that I can't restore this family? You think that I can't have my son be born of a virgin? Is anything too hard for me? This is one of the fundamental attributes of God. If you need to know something about God, here's where you start. He has all power. And this is not just that God has somehow aggregated all of this ability to himself. There's lots of movies and things now where there are characters that have figured out some scientific this or that that lets them have power over atoms or some foolishness like that. That's not how it is with the Lord. His power cannot be taken away. God's name, as he expressed it to Moses in Exodus 3.14, is I am. It's called God's aseity. It's another quality, but we're going to build back to omnipotence. Aseity meaning God is self-existent. That's the definition of God, is that he was before there was anything else. And everything else that exists came from him. It's not God himself in some pantheistic sense, like God is in everything. No, God made everything. That means that everything that exists came from him. Therefore, he has absolute power over it. If you're writing a story... You can change anything you want. And the characters in your story cannot say, hey, 
you, you don't get to do that. It's like, uh, actually, he didn't say that at all. You can go and you can change it however you want. God has all power because he made all things. The mighty one, he who is mighty has done for me great things. And God had certainly done a mighty thing. There are some, and I would tend to agree with them, who would say the incarnation is the greatest miracle in the Bible. That God became a man. That hypostatic union that took place between God and man in Mary's womb to conceive a son. So God's might is the first thing she wants to magnify. If God can do this, there's nothing he can't do. Second, holy is his name. Holy is his name. Holiness is the second idea. This, this word for holy, we think of it, we tend to think like righteous, and that's part of it. But at its most fundamental level, to be holy means to be separate, means to be sanctified. So sanctified and holy go together. We call this room the sanctuary because it is sanctified. What does that mean? To be set apart for something else. This room is set apart for worship, for Bible study, and for prayer, for holy things. It's not that the room itself is special. It's been set aside for holy use. God is also holy in that he is entirely other from all of humanity, from all of existence. God is set apart in his power, in his nature, in his righteousness. Sometimes people like to criticize theology because they want God to be more like us. But that's simply not the case. God is holy. But the most important part of his holiness is that God is morally and spiritually separated. There is no evil in God. This also goes back to God's self-existence. You say, well, could God do wicked things? It's not a matter of ability. Wickedness is anti-godness. God created all things, and anything in that world that is not like him, not like his design, that's the definition of evil. That's why every sin that we talk about is an inversion of something good. Just as fornication is an inversion of marriage and that, that joy that is there. When you talk about wrath and violence, it's the inversion of the justice and the might of God. That's what sin is. So it's not that God is unable to sin like he would if he only could, you know. Some people even like to say God is bound by his nature. I don't even like to say it like that. God is holy. Holy is his name. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, we get a picture of the throne room of heaven. And we see four, I guess they're angels, but the Bible calls them living creatures. And it says each of them have six wings. They're full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, these angels never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So the characteristic that the angels of heaven never cease to proclaim in heaven is God's holiness. Holiness. God is different from you and I. Not only is he entirely other from us, he is entirely without sin, without wickedness. He is unapproachably and brilliantly good in all things. Now, if you think about a God like that, who's not only all-powerful, but is all-good, not like some of these Roman gods that were tricksters, that were capricious in their designs. God is all-good. Now, you might expect that God to keep his distance, wouldn't you? If God is all-powerful, and he's all-good, and here we are, and we're not all-powerful or all-good, and we've totally messed up and committed sins, God's not going to want anything to do with us. But that's not what he did. The holy God had done this for Mary. And the third characteristic she magnifies explains why. 
His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. God is not only all-powerful, He's not only all-good, omnipotent and omnibenevolent, God is love. God is mercy. God is compassionate. God, in His perfect goodness and perfect power, has the knowledge and the ability to execute righteous punishment every time it is deserved. And sometimes we want to get mad at God for that. Lord, don't you see what those terrorists are doing? Lord, don't you see what this group I don't like are doing? Don't you see what our enemies are up to? Don't you see what's happening to my kids? Why don't you do something about that, God? Because God is compassionate and merciful. Mercy is when you've been convicted and you are going to be sent to the guillotine. But you throw yourself upon the king and you say, mercy. And he says, all right, I'm not going to send you. That's mercy. It's not that you're not guilty. It's that you are guilty, but you've been pardoned. Mercy. Psalm 103. This is not just a New Testament idea, by the way. Lots of people like to say, well, I like New Testament Jesus, but Old Testament God kind of freaks me out. Well, what about this one? Psalm 103, 13 and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. What is God's character towards people? Compassion. As a father shows compassion to his children. I've got four children, and uh, I have to show compassion to them every once in a while. Because they already get what they deserve every time. It would not be a pleasant place. I'll give you an example from yesterday. <laughs> My, these, the illustrations just keep coming when you have kids, man. Well, I have three boys, and they are nine, seven, and two. Well, the seven-year-old was laying on the floor. The two-year-old climbs up on the bed, jumps in the air, and jumps on my seven-year-old's head. He starts to scream. My nine-year-old takes it in hand that he's got to do something about this. And uh, I hear screaming coming from downstairs. And you learn to, to you know, parse the screams. Like, is that a painful scream? Or is that a <laughs> tantrum scream? Or they just want attention? And like, ah, I got to go figure this one out. I go up there, and, and <laughs> my nine-year-old has barricaded the two-year-old in the corner of the room. And he's distraught, crying, and screaming, what happened? My seven-year-old's lying on the floor like this, you know, and um, just angry face, right? What happened? Well, Sammy jumped on Colt's head. I said, so why is he crying? He says, well, I, I hit him twice because uh, he needed to be punished. My nine-year-old took it upon himself to spank my two-year-old, but not spank him like I would, just to pop him upside the head once or twice. Then when he got upset and wanted to go see me, he picked him up and put him in the corner and barricaded him there so that he couldn't come down, and then that's when the screaming started. So, as a father, I could have sorted all that out, Starting with, well, what are you laying on the floor in the first place? Probably, if I know him, baiting him to jump on him. And then, why are you jumping? What are you hitting him? What I instead just said was, would y'all just knock it off? <laughs> That's compassion. That's compassion. That's a very mild example, you know. But it says that the Lord knows our frame. God knows what you're like. Oh, God, I want to do the right thing, but don't you, just, don't you see me? God goes, yeah, I do. I know what it's like to be a young boy. I know what it's like to think that you've got to be the man of the house and pop your two-year-old brother upside the head. I get those feelings. And I also know that none of it was malicious or evil. They were just being knuckleheads. So a knock it off was enough. Right? Even though if I wanted to be just, everybody deserved a pop to the head after that one was over. <laughs> but do you know that that's what God is like? God in all his power and all his righteousness could look upon everything you do and send immediate 
infuriated punishment upon you. But he doesn't. Why is that? Because he's compassionate. He's compassionate. If God was not merciful, the only thing we would have left is to tremble before God. And we still tremble before God because we recognize his power. But we tremble before him like you tremble before your dad. You know that you might have it coming, but you also know there's going to be a hug and a kiss waiting for you after it's all over. God has always been love. His goodness is why he persists. Even those that are proud, loud atheists will step out and say, well, why hasn't God stopped the Taliban? Or why hasn't he stopped this child murderer or this serial killer? Whatever. Why doesn't God stop that? Would you believe that it's because God is merciful and compassionate? First of all, he allows men to make free will decisions. But secondly, he says, there's still hope for these people. There's still hope for this one. And you might say, well, I don't think there's hope for any of those guys. Really? Because I could introduce you to a few. There's folks in this room that I'm sure are, are really glad that God did not dole out punishment the minute they sinned, but God waited for them and showed them mercy. May I even say everyone in this room. From generation, she said, to generation. So this incarnation is, is the ultimate revelation of God's mercy. This child to be born to Mary, the ultimate revelation of God's divine compassion because he is about to save the whole world through this child. But we'll get to that in a minute. Verse 51, it takes a very interesting term. In my opinion, this is the heart of Mary's song here. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. This is an interesting turn, because it talks about magnifying the Lord and all that he's done for me, and he's powerful, and he's, he's righteous, but he's good, and he's merciful. And here's what God did. In his strength, God completely flipped the table of the world's natural, we would call it, normal order. Now, basically, this refers to the fact that Mary was a nobody. Mary was a girl from the wrong side of the tracks in a bad part of town who had nothing special to recommend her. And God came down and said, you've found favor and you're going to be the mother of my son. And that shows that God could have chosen a rich or powerful person. He could have chosen the rich wife of the head of the priesthood in Israel. He could have chosen Caesar's wife. He could have chosen anybody. Instead, he chose her, somebody that nobody knew. And this is what she's talking about, that God has shown strength by scattering the proud and the rich and the mighty, and instead chosen me. But there's something bigger here. It's not just about the selection of Mary. It describes the nature of God's intervention that began with Mary. God is choosing to sidestep the ways of the proud, the mighty, and the rich, by refusing to send his son in a way that conforms to their ideas and their structures. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. The proud, the people that think they know a thing or two. And you don't have to be educated to think that, by the way. Right? You can be working in the kitchens of some restaurant and think you've got it all figured out. Known a few of those guys, worked a few of those jobs. The proud, they think they know what God ought to do. Or maybe you have studied and you've looked at all the wisdom and the philosophy of the world and you think, this is what is right and this is what God has to do. And God goes, how about I scatter all those thoughts all over the place? You know, imagine like you, you lay it all out in front of the Lord and says, this is what God should do. We've determined through the best of our wisdom and through much study and much experience, this is it. 
And God just takes his hands and sweeps it all off. Oh, it took us forever to put that together. He goes, yeah, it's foolishness. What about the mighty, the powerful? God's going to send his son. Doesn't it make sense that he support the structure, to support the power in the land of Israel that is trying to resist the Romans? Doesn't it make sense that God used the most powerful empire in the world so that he can spread it to everybody else? Doesn't it make sense that God choose somebody that everybody respects and acknowledges and looks to and says, oh yes, we'll listen to them. That might means absolutely nothing for the Lord. He brought down the mighty from their thrones. Oh, Lord, I'm so glad you're here. He says, get down off that throne. What? Don't, don't you think that I should be here? No, I don't. And the rich, the rich. If you've ever had much dealing with a person who has a lot of money, or even who just thinks of themselves of having a lot of money, and you express to them that you're not really interested in their money, they can get kind of nasty. Maybe you've had a relative that used their, their inheritance to manipulate everybody. You know, when... when Great-grandma Beulah dies. She's got a whole lot of money, and so she's twisting everybody's arm to get what they want. You show up and you say, you know what? I'm sick of this. I'm not, I'm not going to you know, sing and dance for you to get your money. Man, the claws will come out. Or maybe if you're in a business and somebody comes in that has a much bigger business, and they think they can tell you what to do and boss you around, and you say, you know what? I'm not really interested in that. You're crazy. Because this thought, I have all this money, all these resources, and everybody's always coming and asking for it. Everybody's always trying to kiss up and get me to do what they want them to do. You show up and say, no, thank you. The rich has been sent away empty. The rich has been sent away empty. Why is that? I could probably stand here and preach a sermon on why this, the powerful structures in the world are a good thing. And I have. I could talk about why knowledge and wisdom are also good things. Even riches but the problem is that the pursuit and the honor of those things above what is really important is the problem that God had to come fix. This is why in the prophet Isaiah, when he prophesied what it would be like before Messiah came, before the promised child would come, who was Jesus, this is what he said. Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Every valley raised up, every mountain made low. What is that saying? When Jesus comes, it's going to change everything. What you value might be demonstrated to have not much value at all. And the things that you scorn might turn out to be the most important things of all. The belief that God honors status the way we do is a fallacy that will prevent us from receiving the work of Christ. If you think that it had to be money, it had to be power, it had to be wisdom or education, you're going to miss it. God went out of his way to make the birth of Jesus Something unimpressive. I mean, just start with the virgin birth. Remember, Mary's from Nazareth. She's from the wrong part of town, from the wrong town, period. She's engaged to this man. All of a sudden, she is found to be pregnant. And very hastily, they're married. You know people are going to be talking about that. And they're not going to, well, what happened? Well, it was the, the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, sure, honey. Joseph believed it too. And that poor man, raising someone else's child. No clue what's being done to him. You even see this later on in Jesus' life. They're going to accuse him. They're going to say, 
we were not born of sexual immorality, the implication being like you. We know about your family. We know about your mom and her questionable pregnancy. We know what happened with that. They would have had to live with that the rest of their lives. Jesus would have been considered, at least in the minds of many, to be illegitimate. Why did God do it that way? Because God is trying to teach us something. How about this? Baby Jesus was born in a stable. Now that's very romantic in your nativity scene at home, isn't it? Look at the nice little barn, and you got the little, the little donkey and the little sheep, and we have it too. It's all great. But uh, I don't know if that's where I would want our baby to be delivered. There's probably some weird hippie out there that thinks that's like natural or something like that, but it's not normal, and it's not sanitary, and it's, they also probably would not have been the only ones in there. Because they're coming into Bethlehem, remember, because they got to get their taxes paid. There's no room in the inn, so they would have been forced out to the stable with all the other poor folks. So not only is it just a barn filled with animals, it's a barn filled with animals and a whole bunch of other people. And now Mary's got to give birth there. They're in that stable. Why? Because they're not in charge of their own destiny. They've got to go home to Bethlehem because Rome says, we need to know how many of you there are so that we can tax you. We can tax you. You think you get upset about taxes. They say, everybody's got to go back. Go back to the house of your ancestors. I'm from Bethlehem. I got, a, I got a pregnant wife. Don't care. Travel. Okay, well, at least we'll have a nice bed. No, you won't. Sleep in the barn. Where are we going to put the baby? Oh, There's a feeding trough right there. Now we look at that and we can think, well, that's not the baby's fault. That's not his. Yeah, but there would have been a stigma associated with that too. You couldn't, you, you couldn't be born anywhere nice. You couldn't have gone somewhere where you had people to take care of you and look after you. How about this? Nobody knew about the birth of the Messiah except the shepherds in the fields. And we think, oh, shepherds, how quaint, how delightful. Now, the shepherds were the, the rascals around town. You read in the literature of the time, they'll tell you that when the shepherds came in, they would be out in the field most of the time, and then they'd bring in the sheep for the shearing or to be sold or whatever. And everybody would basically say, lock your doors. The shepherds are coming to town. Don't walk too close to them, kids. Keep your hands in your pockets and watch out because the shepherds have come to town. Kind of like a lot of blue-collar work is unfortunately looked on today. And the angels show up, and the angels do this magnificent heavenly choir performance for some shepherds. Hey, let's go to Bethlehem. And they knock on the door, and, and Mary is recovering from the delivery of the child. And there's, I imagine, some other ladies in there trying to help her out. And then now there's a bunch of shepherds at the door that want to see the baby. Uh, do you know the child? Uh, no, we don't. But some angels came and told us to take a look. I think you all need to keep on your way. No, no, we really want to see. Will you at least ask Joseph, will you send these shepherds away? He goes, what's up? We want to see the baby. Okay, yeah. And then they bring in these shepherds to come. And they fall down before this child. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. They could have known. They should have known. But God went out of his way to make sure nobody understood except these shepherds. Why? Because if God had sent Jesus to be born in the palaces of Rome with the greatest physicians of the time and the cleanest, most sanitary places, or if he had been born to a, a powerful general that knew how to raise soldiers, or somebody who had great wealth and was well-respected by society, people would have assumed that that status conferred something upon Jesus. Well, of course the Son of God was born to a wealthy man because that's who, that's who God favors. God favors wealthy people. Of course he would have been born in the, in the houses of the great lords because God is noble and doesn't God look upon nobility? And for the rest of history, we would have been thinking, God loves everybody, but he loves some people more than others. 
yes, yes, status is fine, but you know, the real, to be really like Jesus, you've got to be up here. Instead, God was teaching us something else. He was going all the way to the bottom so that nobody could ever think that what God was doing through Jesus excluded them. 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no man might boast in the presence of God. Nobody is above anybody else in God's kingdom. They might say, well, everybody says that. You know why everybody says that? Because they learned it from Jesus. This is where we get this idea, that we are all equal before God, because God said, I'm going to send my son to the lowest of the low, to be raised and to live as the lowest of the low, so that the other lowest of the low might know that God cares for them too. This is not a rich person thing. This is not a powerful thing. This is not a might thing. This is not a Jew thing. It's not a Gentile thing. It's for everybody. Because every single man and woman on this earth is naked and desperate before God. God is holy. You are not. I am not. I remember one time I was in Costa Rica with a missions team, a bunch of high school students, and they had this courtyard in the hotel where you could hang out because there's no air conditioning, so you wanted to be out where the wind was moving. And we're all hanging out and laughing, cutting up. And this girl walks out. She was from Canada, probably in like her 20s. Can I hang out with you guys? Sounds like you're speaking English. She's like, yeah, you can come hang out. And what are you doing in Costa Rica? Well, we're Christians. We're here to tell people about Jesus. And she said, well, you aren't one of those crazy Christians that believe that everybody's a sinner, right? And all the teenagers looked at me like... <laughs> So they, yeah, we are. And she was really embarrassed. She was just trying to be funny. But what I expressed to her was, you don't think everybody's perfect, do you? Well, of course not. That's what I'm talking about. To be a sinner means you have sinned. Sin is an archery term. To miss the mark. To be off the center. Well, that's not fair. Everybody Okay, now you're with me. Now you're with me. We all miss the mark. But God does not. And God is holy. And not only did you just, oops, sorry, I messed up. It's wickedness, y'all. It's wickedness that dwells in us. I've never done anything wicked. I would hope not, but it's in you. Think about the things in your heart and in your life. Things that you wouldn't tell anybody. Things that you wouldn't maybe say out loud. Or maybe you wouldn't say it loud to everybody. But when your dander gets up, you get angry. Or you get really depressed. And just the thoughts that start to go through your heart. Well, I would never do those things. Yeah, but what if you were to give way to those things? It wouldn't be hard to figure that out. To see where you'd end up, is it? You ever see yourself in something terrible? See somebody do something or say something? Or even on like TV or in a book that you've read and you have a horrible moment where you kind of get it? Oh my goodness, I could do that. I could be that. That's because it's in you. It's in you. We're all naked and desperate before God. So if God were to come and send his son to the highest echelons of society, he's going to be communicating to us, Try your best to get up here, and once you get up here, maybe I'll have something for you. And notice, this does not exclude the rich. Some people want to preach that message and let their politics seep into the gospel here. See, God hates rich people. No, no, no. A couple years later, a couple wise men, magi, kings from the east are going to come. But what did they do? They fell on their face before the Lord. They humbled themselves. They lowered themselves before God. 
The gospel welcomes all people. So Mary is rejoicing here because her poverty and her obscurity were not going to keep her from experiencing the mercy of God. Nor does it prevent you from experiencing the love of God. Nobody knows who I am. Nobody cares who I am. Maybe that's, that bothers you. I know how that feels. To feel like you've got something to offer the world and nobody cares. That's hard. Maybe you feel alone. Maybe you've just been rejected by every man you've ever met or every woman you've ever met. And you're just like, am I anything? Do people just like see right through me? Do anybody care about who I am? The Lord does. Oh, you just don't know the things I've done. You don't know how wicked I've been. You, you talk about people that, that haven't done things. I've done some things that if I were to tell you, you'd run me right out of this building. Well, that's not going to prevent God from loving you. That's why God showed his love through Jesus. She ends in verse 54 and 55 by saying, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So she comes back to this, this national idea, which is very important, praising God for helping her nation, which of course was Israel, through this birth, that the birth that was about to happen was to bring help to Israel in fulfillment of the promises he had made to Abraham and to his offspring. She's referencing here Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, when the Lord God said to Abram, as was his name at the time, it was later changed to Abraham, he said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and I will bless you, and so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This was a promise God made. He said, I'm going to give you a promised land. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply your descendants. I'm going to fight for you. And one day you are going to be a blessing to the whole world. And that was fulfilled. Israel took possession of their land. You read about it in the Old Testament. But they were exiled from their land for their horrible rebellion against God, the, the wickedness they committed. And they were back in the land now with Mary, but they weren't their own rulers. They were, they were living in a fraction of the land they had had before. Their king wasn't on the throne. They were oppressed. She was being forced to move so that she could be taxed by somebody that had never even been to her land before. Talk about taxation without representation. So when she hears that this child that is to be born will sit on the throne of David, will restore the kingdom to Israel, and not only that, but it's going to last forever and ever and ever, her heart leapt for her nation. God has finally helped us. But you need to know that this promise is bigger than just nationalism for the land of Israel, as good as that was. The promise was to bless all the families of the earth. All the families of the earth. Something bigger was going on. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel also appeared to Joseph, Mary's fiance, and said, hey, you need to marry this woman and don't be afraid. I know it's not your child, but she's telling the truth. It says in Matthew 1.21, She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, which means salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. The promise that God had made was not just to exalt this one nation. It was to exalt them for a purpose, to bring about the one who would bring salvation from sin. 
And that's what Jesus Christ came to do, to bring salvation and forgiveness from sin. Because Romans tells us that the wages of sin, what you get paid for your sin, is death. Death, not just death now, death forever in a place of eternal torment called hell. You might scoff at that now, but I have found that when the chips are down and things look very serious, people start to consider that a little more seriously. The punishment for sin, the punishment for who you are. We can have an inflated sense of our ego. We can have a, a really miserable sense of who we are. But God's way of looking at it is, I love you with all of my heart, but you are not only a victim of sin and wickedness, you are a perpetrator of sin and wickedness. And people are continuing to engage in those things because of you. And the penalty for that is death in hell. So, well, then what are we supposed to do? Well, is there anything to be done about it? Not by you. But here's what God said. I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send that Logos made flesh to the Virgin Mary. He's going to be born. He's going to live a righteous life apart from sin. He's going to teach us the truth about God, most of which was tossing out a bunch of useless tradition that was binding people up and bringing them right back to the source of love for one another and love for the person of God. But not only that, he would come to the end of his life and he would be crucified. He would die on a Roman cross, nails between his hands and his feet, the crown of thorns upon his head, his body laid open by the flogging, shamed by the mockery that came upon him. But then on the third day, he would rise again from the dead. He would come back to life to signal to everybody that the penalty for sin, which is death, has been paid for because I went to death and I've come back from death and now I can offer you forgiveness freely. The Lord promised in Genesis 3.15, back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, God said the day is going to come when a seed will come. A son will be born of this woman who's going to crush the head of this serpent even though his heel will be bruised. That someday I'm going to send somebody to put an end to all of this and to restore things back to the way they were. That promise was passed on to Abraham and that promise lived in the people of Israel until now God has said to Mary, through you is going to come that one that I've promised. And isn't it interesting that even back in Genesis 3, when he said the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent, you think seed typically comes from the, the man, not from the woman. But the seed of woman would be the virgin-born son of God, Jesus. Even right there, God was prophesying what was going to happen. And on that cross, Jesus took the penalty for sin. He took everything you've ever thought you deserved or anything that you've ever looked at some wicked person and thought what they deserved. God took that on himself on the cross in Jesus. All the things that make you say, I can't come to God because here's what I deserve. Jesus bore that. He shed his blood for you. He shed his blood for me. Mercy. The mercy that extends from generation to generation. God said, if I want to pardon these people, the, the sins they have committed must be paid for. I'll pay for them and then offer them forgiveness for free. That's why we call it good news. 
because it is now offered to you freely salvation for anybody who's going to believe and follow Jesus. To repent. What does that mean? It means to renounce the old life. I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to start walking this way, following after Jesus, living the way he taught me to live, letting his life stand for mine. And that when I die, the only thing I'm holding on to for another chance at this is that Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross for me. Mercy purchased for everyone in remembrance of the promise that he had made that all nations of the world would be blessed. All nations. This isn't an American thing. It's not a European or Western thing. It's for all nations. For all nations. Every man, woman, and child. And you today might be here feeling that you've done too much for God to reach you and save you. You've done too much. You've gone too far. It is amazing how many people feel that. Even those that come to church because they know they should. But they think, but they don't understand what I've done. I killed somebody. I had an abortion. Don't they know how much I've stolen and my spouse has no idea what I've done? Don't they know what I did to my children when I was raising them? Don't they know the things that I did when I would sneak out? My parents had no idea. And it might not even be anything huge like that. It's just something that weighs on your conscience. And maybe there have been people that should have shown you love and forgiveness, but only increased the burden upon you to now you think that's how God is too. But I'm here to tell you it's not what God is like. God is the one that would send His Son to die in your place. That's why it had to be God's son. As a man, he could die for men. But as a God boy, he could die for every man. And not only that, but the grave couldn't ever hold him down. And I'm here to tell you that the reason you came into this church today, in this place, is because God is finally trying to tell you, I forgive you. Come and receive my forgiveness. And stop feeling like you've got to hide in the corner. Stop feeling like you've got to pay for it with your tithes or with your service or with your guilt and your self-flagellation or keeping a distance. God says, I've already paid for that. Or maybe you're here and you're on the opposite side and you think, I don't need this. I don't need salvation. I'm doing good. Thank you very much. Life's going good. Making my money. Happy with my family. Happy with the way things are going. You know, I've got my problems. I've got my issues, but I'm really doing okay. You know, I think religion is something for poor people. I'm never people that just don't have anything going for them in life. You know, they go and they, they hear these messages about blessed are the poor, and it makes them feel good. But, you know, true success stories like myself don't need that kind of weak sauce. Well, I'm doing just fine, thank you. Or maybe you're mighty. I've got everything I need, everything I ever want. And if I wanted something, I'd go out and get it. I'm confident in my ability to stand before God if that were to happen and cut a deal with him because, you know what, from one man to another, we can talk it through. Or maybe you're just proud. Religion is for stupid people. Hear that one a lot. It's for stupid people. Now, what people usually mean by that is they say, I want to be smart. Some smart people don't believe in religion. So if I don't believe in religion, that makes me smart too. Let's make you smart, makes you a sheep, makes you a follower. Makes you a copycat. Well, there's so many people. They've, they've, science has proven. Science has not proven anything. This is entirely out of the realm of empirical study. Because this is something that is supernatural. And not only that, if something like this happened 2,000 years ago, what kind of evidence would you expect? How about people that, wrote, that saw it wrote it down? Well, I want photographs. They didn't have cameras back there. You met a time machine. Go take some pictures. Help yourself. <laughs> 
But not only that, the changed lives. 2,000 years of transformed sinners. Doesn't that mean anything? Doesn't that say anything? That people that were violent and, and depraved and broken have been brought back from the edge and have been completely turned around and restored? Where else does that happen? Well, it happens to every religion that happens. It doesn't, you guys. It simply doesn't. I know because I've been around the world and I've seen it. I've been there. And in America, we take so much for granted about what everybody thinks and believes because we have soaked in the gospel for so long. We think things like love and mercy and kindness and forgiveness and equality are something everybody thinks. It's simply not the case. You learned it from Christ. It's time for you, like those wise men, to bow the knee and say, God is greater than I am and I can't save myself. And I receive that greatest of gifts. You might be a shepherd with nothing to offer and everybody thinks you're a scallywag. Or you might be a, a wise man. Everybody looks great at you. Oh, how wonderful. They're here. That's really kind of boosts our status a little bit. Whoever you are, you must come and bow the knee before Christ. Is this just another Christmas service? Or is this the day you're finally going to find God's mercy? It can be today. I mean, I just got to choose? Yeah. That's it. Change is easy, friends. You come and say, Jesus, I'm following you now. I'm going to believe this. I'm going to believe this now. You say, well, I don't know if I can be totally convinced of it. Is your heart thumping out your chest? Because it might be God talking to you. I wish this was true with all my heart. It's because it is true, and you know it's true, but there's something blocking you. It's time to repent and renounce your ways and stop trying to establish your own righteousness or, God forbid, thinking to yourself, well, let me go have some fun first, and then I'll get my act together. You really want to do that? You really want to go and waste your life, waste your youth, or maybe it's not even your youth, building up a bunch of baggage until finally you show up to the church, you finally show up to the Lord, and now you're going to spend the rest of your life wrestling with all these problems that you've made for yourself? The Bible says, remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the day comes when you have no more delight in the days that you have. Remember, now, magnify the Lord today. He is powerful. He is holy. He is good. He's merciful. He sent his son Jesus to this woman Mary. And in that, that act of choosing this poor, what we might even call undeserving young girl, God demonstrated to all of us, that's how I'm going to treat each one of you. I'm going to choose you by my mercy and my sovereign choice, not because of anything that you've done. Hope has come to all of us, the child of Mary. Jesus, the Son of God, has been born, but more than that, He has lived, He has died, He has risen again, and one day He's coming back to bring us all to be with Him. Amen?